Good morning. Turn with me your Bibles to the book of James. We'll be in James chapter 1, verses 19 through the end of the chapter in 27. If you've got a Bible from the back table or one, a Bible that we've given you that can be found on page 1011. 1011. If you're not used to looking at a Bible, the chapter number is the big number and the verse number is the little number at the top, the beginning of the sentence. So James chapter 1, verse 19. Chapter 1 sets the stage in many ways for the rest of the book of James, for the letter. Uh, The last couple of weeks we've been looking at this extended introduction that we've seen in verses 1 through 18, where James uh, is exhorting us towards steadfastness and reminding us of the, and we, we thought about what steadfastness was, and that is the, uh, um, uh, is being under a heavy load for an extended period of time. And we talked about how the benefits of steadfastness accrued to us both in this life, which we saw in verse 4, um, uh, that makes us perfect and complete and lacking in nothing, and also the benefits of steadfastness in the next life that we saw in verse 12, um, that we will, when we have stood the test, when we've stood fast to the end, we will receive the crown of life um, that God has promised to those who love him in eternity. And so um, um, today we look in verses 19 through 27 um, at the, this final section which takes that promise of steadfastness and gives us practical guidance for what steadfastness in life looks like that will be carried on and expounded upon in the rest of the letter. And so this morning I'd like for us to consider steadfast living and what steadfast living entails. And this will... Um, outline how we go through our time together. Steadfast living entails first. By the way, if you want a sermon guide that has all the points on it or a children's listening guide, they can be found on the back table. So, so uh, you don't have to write all this down. But steadfast living entails first humility before others and before God. We see that in verses 19 through 21. Humility before others and before God. Secondly, steadfast living entails obedient hearing. Obedient hearing, we see that in verses 22 through 25. And finally, steadfast living entails keeping watch on the gauges of our hearts. And we see that in verses 26 and 27. Keeping watch on the gauges of our hearts. So let's begin reading in James chapter 1, verse 19. This is God's word. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself 
and goes away and at once forget what he was like. Forgets, forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is God's word. So the first thing we see here in verses 19 through 21 is steadfast living entails humility before others and before God. In the most obvious way of exhibiting humility before others is by being, as 19 says, quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. It's interesting that when we're pursuing steadfastness, this isn't just an inward exercise, but it's also an outward exercise, how we relate to others. Fostering humility in our lives is an essential component of steadfastness. If we're thinking about enduring hardships or experiencing trials, many of the trials we experience come in our relationships with other people, whether that be in conflict or in cooperation, we endure, we, we experience, or we, we have to practice steadfastness in those relationships. We want to be quick to listen. We want to be quick to listen to others. In terms of caring for other people, we want to be quick to listen to them, right? In all circumstances, we want to be quick to listen. We want to understand where people are coming from. We want to hear them out so that we may serve them better or care for them. We want to give them every opportunity to convey their feelings to us so that we can understand them. We know this ourselves. One of the best ways that we can help others is just by listening. How many of us have heard from our spouse, would you just listen? I remember I'm reminded of of the story of Job. Um, When Job lost everything he had, his his, his children and everything he had, Um, in uh, the first chapter of Job. In Job 2, verses 11 through 13, he had his three friends sitting next to him when Job had had, uh, put the ashes on his head and was sitting there uh, just in mourning. Job 2, 11 through 13 says, They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and to comfort him. And they sat with him on the ground seven days, and no one spoke a word to him. For they saw that his suffering was very great. Oftentimes we have an urge in a trying moment to say or to come up with something profound. To crystallize the situation completely where they go, wow, that's exactly what's happening. But oftentimes it falls flat, doesn't it? I don't know what the purpose for this is, why we do this. I sense that it comes from pride, it stems from pride, us wanting to cut to the quick of a situation. But if we've got to understand that if, if the Lord has brought this about, if the Lord is the one doing this, which we have certainly seen, the Lord is the one who has brought this trial upon them. And if we think back to what we just considered in the book of Ecclesiastes, that we have not the foggiest idea what the Lord is doing, 
How arrogant is, of, of, is, uh, uh, is it of us to try to crystallize what the Lord is doing in this situation? And instead, shouldn't we just be quiet and listen to them? Shouldn't we just be quick to hear, ready to hear, prepared to hear, committed to hear? I had lunch with a brother this week, and I'd, as I'd been in this passage all week, I, I prayed before that I would be quick to listen and just sat there, listen, 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 just speaking to myself. Listen, 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 over and over again. Listen to what your brother is saying. Listen to what my family is saying. Right along with this is being slow to speak. As we've already alluded to, we're not helping anyone if we're just talking to hear ourselves talk. I'm reminded of the quote from Michael Scott from the TV show The Office where he says, sometimes I'll just start a sentence and I don't even know where it's going. I just hope I find it along the way. It's kind of like an improv conversation. Now, I laugh at that and the reason it's funny is because I do that myself from time to time. I just open my mouth mouth, and I realize that I'm way over my skis and I don't have the foggiest idea where this conversation is going to go. And and so I'm just trying to workshop it in my mind as my mouth is is, uh, moving. It's embarrassing. It's no good for anyone to do that. Wouldn't the poor person having to listen to me carry on be better served? If I took a moment or two just to gather my thoughts before I opened my mouth. Paul in Ephesians 4, 29 tells us, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up. Speak to one another in ways that it might benefit those who listen. Now, are there times when it's good to be quick to speak? Yeah, I can think of a couple. Shark! Or bus! But a lot of the time, it's better for us just to stop and just to gather our thoughts and to think about what the Lord is leading us or what, what is helpful to say. And we can exhibit a humility while speaking up and by speaking um, uh, quickly in a moment. But by and large, the more humble, careful thing to do is to consider the hearer and their needs. Especially if you're trying to say hard things. I used to have occasion to travel with Senator Phil Graham, and one of the things that he would say is, it's easier to toss hand grenades than to catch them. And we should seek to say hard things to people in ways that would enable our brothers and sisters to receive them with God's grace. Which leads us to James also encouraging us to be slow to anger. James says that anger doesn't bring about the righteousness of God. Meaning it very seldom displays God's character in you. How has God disciplined you? Has God disciplined you angrily? Or has God disciplined you patiently? So if God has disciplined you patiently then why would you correct or confront someone else angrily? If we want people to respond to our admonishment, do you think they'll respond favorably to your anger? They're human too. And so if they're human, if you're aggressive and angry, then they're going to be angry and aggressive. It doesn't bring about the righteousness that you seek. And if it isn't righteous anger, which most of the time it isn't, 
then they haven't heard you. You've missed the opportunity. You've missed the opportunity for correction. If we're, to, if we're after building steadfastness in our brothers and sisters, anger doesn't do it. It causes them to sin in anger or not to hear what you have to say. Now, obviously, we can be on the business end of these things too, right? We, I mean, we have, to, we have to receive these conversations. We're not just giving them, but we have to receive them. So when we're confronted... Be quick to listen. Be quick to hear what others have to say. After all, do you like having hard conversations with people? No, we hate it. We dread them. We don't want to have those at all. So if they feel strongly enough to have this conversation with us, either because of their concern for us or the trouble that we're causing them, let's be quick to hear them out. Let's be quick to understand what they're saying. Let's also be slow to speak. Our natural inclination is to quickly defend ourselves, to get out in front of it and put it back on them. I'm working on this in my own family with, my, with Heather and the kids. I'm, if I'm quick to speak or I'm quick to anger, it makes their task that much harder. And the Bible is surprisingly candid about this. Rome, uh, Proverbs 12.1 Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid being slow to speak is a mark of humility. Be slow to anger. Are there times when anger is warranted? Yes, but I would submit that those times are few and far between. How did Jesus respond even when he was even when when he was treated even unjustly? 1 Peter 3:23 when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. As an aside, if there's a key to steadfast living, I think this may be it. Entrusting himself, entrusting yourself to him who judges justly. Are you wrongly accused? Entrust yourself to him who judges justly. Are you in a terrible financial or relational trial? And trust yourself to him who judges justly. Are you in a difficult health situation? And trust yourself to him who judges justly. Are you experiencing great success? And trust yourself, not to your circumstances or your popularity or your wealth, but rather to him who judges justly, who gave you everything you have and who sees things as they truly are. Brothers and sisters, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. By doing so, we can live carefully among other people, carefully and humbly. And then James says, in addition to this careful speaking and interacting with others, humility entails putting away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Don't just don't justify or coddle your wickedness, but be done with it. Acknowledge your sin. Don't proudly hold on to it and seek to save face from it, but move on from it. Move on from the wickedness. And receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Now for me, this is one of the best pictures in the whole book. How do we receive something with meekness? 
This is how I got this whole idea of humility in this section, this word meekness. Think about the poor person, the meek person receiving bread. They're hungering for it. They're dependent upon it. They're grateful for it. They're eager to receive it. They savor it. They know it's not deserved. And when they get it, they devour it. They eat it, trusting that this will meet their need in the moment. They receive it. But then the metaphor or the imagery of the whole thing changes. They receive what? The implanted word. So it's likened to a seed. It's put there by someone else, right? It's put there by God. It's an implanted word, and so there's intentionality to it. It's a process. There's an expectation on the part of the planter. I'm so thankful for uh, Kyle choosing that Isaiah 55 passage. I didn't even think about that this week, but it, it's perfect because there is an expectation that, uh, that the Lord is doing his work through his word. And so when he's placing that word in you, when he's speaking this word to you at this moment, He is expecting something to happen. The ultimate expectation is that this implanted word will save your soul. The word of God will save your soul if you receive it with meekness. And if you will let it have its way with you, it will build steadfastness in you and it will make you steadfast. But there's another aspect to the plant analogy here that I think, that I think we need to uh, consider, and it's going to lead into our second point. But if the implanted word is going to have its intended effect, which is to save your soul, then there should be evidence of that word growing in you. There ought to be fruit here. There ought to be fruit now. If this, if this in, implanted word is going to ultimately do something, then it ought to be exhibiting something happening today. And so what parable comes to mind here? The parable of the soils. So if there isn't fruitfulness in the progress for the seed, there's no deficiency in the seed, right? That's the perfect word of God, as Isaiah said. But the deficiency is in the soil. You're the soil. You're receiving it. With, uh, are you receiving that word, implanted word, with meekness? Does your life display humility? Are you quick to hear? Are you slow to speak? Are you slow to anger? Are you putting away all filthiness and rampant wickedness? Steadfast living is enabled by humility before others and before the Lord. Which leads to James's second point. Steadfast living entails obedient hearing. So as was just said, if we're receiving the implanted word, there ought to be evidence of that in our lives. We see this in family all the time. Billy, I told you to take out the trash. Yeah, I know, I heard you. Well, I don't think you did because the trash is still here. Right? And so hearing is doing. Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Matthew 7, 26. I'll tell you who the wise man is. The man who builds his house on the rock is the one who hears these words and does them. Doing gives evidence of hearing. So James says steadfast living entails doing the word and not just hearing the word. 
If you hear it only and you don't do it, you're deceiving yourself. You haven't really received it. It's not having any effect upon you. And in verses 23 and 24, he gives us a very effective analogy here. He likens hearing the word and not doing it to a person who, not just in passing, but with intent, looks and with purpose looks into a mirror. He's looking at his natural face. He's looking at things as they truly are. A true reflection of what is what your face is like. The mirror does not lie. And what does he find? I don't know. Maybe he finds a big piece of spinach in your teeth. Or maybe she finds a glob of mascara on her face. Or maybe you look in the mirror and you see this gigantic cowlick in your hair. And so you look and you go and you just walk away. You don't do anything about it. You're looking and you see everything as it truly is and you go... And you walk away. Now, it just doesn't make any sense to do that, right? No one would ever do that. We can begin to make a logical excuse of why they wouldn't act on it. So there's really only two conclusions that we could draw in that situation. One, they're blind and didn't see the spinach or the mascara or the cowlick. Or they look at their image and they like it better the way it is they like what they see so if we look into the word of God the perfect law which doesn't lie what do we see we see God as he truly is and we see ourselves as we truly are we see God's perfect standard the blessings that follow from them right Or we see the failure to follow them and the penalty for not following them. And so what if we don't act on what we see? There's no real logical explanation for not acting, right? It's the implanted word. There's no fault in the implanted word. The word that saves our soul and produces fruit. And so there's no problem with the word. Why wouldn't we do what it says? It doesn't make any sense. We can't find any legitimate reason why we wouldn't do that. So there's really only two assumptions. One is you didn't hear the word. Oh, you heard it, but you didn't hear it. You are the soil that Jesus talks about that falls on the worn path. Where it's not received, it just bounces off the ground and the birds quickly steal it away. Or you like what you see. You like what you see better. Both are signs that you are not a believer. Both are signs that you are not steadfast. You are deceived. James says in verse 22 that the person who hears the word and doesn't do it is deceived. Now your law gospel radar may go off and go, no, no, wait a second. Hold on. That's law. You're preaching law right now. You're just into behavior modification. You Pharisee, you're demanding me to do things. An apple tree would never say, why are you demanding that I produce apples? 
Why are you always about me producing apples? Well, that's the fruit you produce. You were created for it. It's not a burden. It's who you are. It's not the law of burden. It's the law of liberty, verse 25. The implanted implanted word frees us up to do what we were created to do. Now, looking into this mirror of the perfect law, it's ugly at times. And there are things that we see that we do not like. And sure, it's easier sometimes to just want to stay the way you are. But the one who is steadfast, who perseveres, is the one who keeps looking into that perfect law, that perfect law of liberty, and does it and repents when he doesn't do it. That is the one who will be blessed in his doing, verse 25. Both here, as he is made perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing, and on that final day when he receives the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And who, by the way, who is it that loves the Lord? The one who keeps his commandments. Now, if you look at your life, and you take stock in it, and you think, you know, I don't, I don't even really look at the Bible. I, I just, I don't really pay any attention to it. I don't really have anything inside me that's saying, eh, this isn't right. Or, I don't think it's really important to do what the Word of God says. You're deceiving yourself. You're fooled. You're in trouble. Confess that to the Lord. Confess that. Um, that disinterest can confess that ambivalence to the Lord plead with him say Lord I know that your ways are right given give me a new heart change my heart cause me to desire good things plant your word deep within me help me turn away from all my wickedness Jesus the perfect son of God left heaven He left heaven and came and lived in place of wicked, filthy people. He didn't need to die because he never sinned, but he did die. He he died taking the penalty on himself for anyone who would ever turn from their wickedness and their filthiness and trust in him. And he was raised as proof that that penalty for your sin, all of it had been paid. And he was raised for your justification and he was raised to give you new life. New life to desire good things. New life to produce fruit. New life to give evidence of a growing tree. New life to do what God commands. New life to display God's character to the world. And that enables you to enjoy his work. His resurrection from the dead enables you to enjoy fellowship with Him forever in heaven. Steadfast living is enabled by obedient hearing. Finally, in verses 26 and 27, we see that steadfast living entails keeping watch on the gauges of the heart. Keeping watch on the gauges of the heart. The first gauge is your mouth. We've already talked quite a bit about mouths and uh, our mouths in the first point. And as we saw in our New Testament reading, out of the overflow of the mouth, the heart speaks. Out, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
And so if you pay attention to your words, you're able to gain insight into what's in your heart. How's your language? Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, 4, get rid of all filthy talk and coarse joking for it is improper. It's improper for God's holy people. But rather, we should be speaking thanksgiving. If we have thankful hearts, if we understand what God has done for us, then thanksgiving ought to be what comes out of our mouth when, we, when we're squeezed. If we were to dip into the heart of a believer, we ought to find gratitude and not filthy or rash talk. How's your language when no one's around? How's your language when you're doing that home improvement project? When no one's around. Take stock of your heart in that situation. That's a gauge that we've got to keep an eye on. I like the phrase that's used here. He, he should, uh, does not bridle his tongue. Friends, this doesn't come natural. Speaking cleanly, speaking honorably, does not come natural. It requires us to bridle our tongues. You put a bridle on a horse to lead it where it wants to go because it's not in its nature to go where you want it to go. That horse doesn't know where you want to go. You've got to direct it. It doesn't go where it should. It has to be stopped. It has to be corrected. It has to be turned around. Where do you want your mouth to go? In chapter 3, James will talk about how the tongue is the bridle or the bit of the body. And that the body follows wherever the tongue goes. That's not what he's using a different analogy here. He's saying here that we have to bridle our tongues. We have to direct our mouth. We have to steer them. We have to slow it down. We have to silence it. Watching our language and our speech is synonymous with checking our heart. If we don't do that, or if we don't see the value in it, we deceive ourselves. Because the mouth is the overflow of the heart. And we show our faith worthless by what we speak. Another gauge of our hearts is our attitude toward the lowly, the widow and the orphan. What's our attitude toward the helpless in the world? What is our concern for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan? What's our attitude toward people in need? What's our attitude toward the lowly among us? If we understood our helplessness and the Lord's mercy he's shown us personally, it will have an effect on how we see others. If we think back to Jesus landing on that shoreline, I think it's, I can't remember, it's in Mark, I can't remember if it's in Mark 6. Anyway, he lands on the shoreline and he looks on them and he had compassion on them for they were helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd. If we think about helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd and we don't see ourselves as Jesus leaving heaven and coming to earth to save us, to have compassion upon us, to save you who were equally without hope, then we have looked in the mirror and we have forgotten who we are. We've talked a little bit about this last week in 9 through 11 about lowly brothers and and what, what their future reward will be 
And we'll think, oh, Lord willing, a lot about it next week in chapter 2. But if we're insensitive or impatient in our regard for the lowly among us, we deceive ourselves thinking that the Lord is indifferent toward those attitudes that in us. Lastly, another gauge that we must watch is our relationship with the world. Our relationship with the world. As we thought about in verses 1 through 4 a couple of weeks ago, James is writing to the church and the world, and he's writing out of a concern that the world will not seep into the church. So this applies to us individually as well. How do the ways of the world creep into our lives? What occupies our time? Do we engage the world on its terms? Do we constantly look for political or expedient ways to address the problems of sin in the world? Or do we call out to the Lord for those? Do we fight against the pleasures and priorities that the world offers? What lifts our spirits? What are, what are, what's the desire of our hearts? Do we seek to blow right past the trials in life, covering them with money? Or do we find security in our bank account or in our, 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 um, uh, a good health report rather than the Lord? Do we find a lack of sensitivity in our souls right now? And how do we address that? As Paul says in Ephesians 4, if that's the case, if we're, if we're, if we're uh, ambivalent or if we feel hardened hearts, where do we go to get pricked to feel things, to, to, to feel some movement in our souls? And, and Paul says that uh, they are calloused in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them to the hardness of their, due to the hardness of their hearts. And having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. All these gauges give us glimpses into the true state of our hearts. We constantly must monitor those and invite others to do the same. Steadfast living is enabled by keeping watch on the gauges of our hearts. You know, thinking about this this week, the, the church is a wonderful means of grace that the Lord has given us to help us live the steadfast life. We pursue humility before one another and before the Lord. Paul tells us to submit to one another, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We invite others into our lives to, to share with us what they see, to offer encouragement as well as correction. And we respond humbly and we covenant together to, um, to fight sin. Here on Sunday morning, we don't have discussions or talks. We have sermons. A lot of what we've heard today is, has been one person up here speaking or reading to you. There hasn't been a lot of conversation. It's because we realize that the most important thing that we can do, the most important thing that can happen to us on a Sunday morning is for us to be silent before the Lord and hear from Him. So we're not quick to speak before Him. But we do speak. We seek to address Him in ways that He ordains and, and invites. We share with Him the desires and the burdens of our hearts. 
We pray to him and we ask him to, to, uh, to correct us and we ask him to, uh, to show us more of himself and we acknowledge him and we praise him. We take time at the end of our time together to silently reflect on what the Lord has said to us before we take time to encourage one another. And so part of that is let's hear what the Lord has said to us and show us ways that we may build one another up to love and good works. We provide opportunities to take a sober look at our lives and to take stock in what we've heard, to inspect our hearts and to ask for forgiveness from the Lord and for one and from one another. We know that much of the steadfast life entails our relationships with one another. And we reflect on God's implanted word, which is able to save our souls and seek to speak it to one another and nurture one another in its effect on our lives, both individually and corporately. The life of steadfastness is not accidentally lived, but God has generously and graciously given us his spirit, his word, his son, his people, and his church to guard us against the deception of this world and to grow us in Christ's likeness. May we in humility Receive this word from the Lord. Let's pray. Help us to receive what you have spoken to us today. And may you show us how to encourage one another. And may you illuminate areas of our lives in which we need to repent and ask you for forgiveness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.